Welcome to Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. My goal is to encourage you to follow your dreams and give you a playbook on how to get there. Thanks for listening and let the episode begin. Welcome to an exciting episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast. Why exciting, you ask? Well, this particular interview was actually shared to the Ultimate Music Business Summit in January. I was happy to be a sponsor of this incredible summit, which covers topics such as music production, audio editing, marketing, fostering relationships, networking, and more with an array of experts, which completely aligns with my mission to support, advocate, and share expertise for mentors. Two of my interviews that are going to be on the podcast were featured in their lineup and I had an absolute blast. This particular interview was with an incredibly accomplished individual by the name of Shin Cho. Shin is Warner Music Asia's head of K-pop and J-pop and was named by Rolling Stones as part of their Future 25 or their 25 visionaries helping to push the music business forward. Shin's responsibilities are vast, but include seeking out effective collaborations between popular artists in the East and the West. He talks about one in particular that he shared success in called Way Back Home from Korean DJ and artist Sean with UK artist Connor Maynard and EDM giant Sam Felt. In this episode, he talks about graduating from Rutgers and his first couple internships in the music business, working his way up as well as collaborating on a marketing strategy for different artists, bands, and groups. We also discussed the growing post-COVID market and the return of tours, yes, in addition to the emerging importance of TikToks, TikTok, which he says is looked at differently here in the States than it is back home in Korea. Without further ado, here's Shin Cho. Hi, thank you so much Hello. for coming on Mentors on the Mic. Not a problem at all. Thanks for inviting me. So I always start the podcast with what was your first role in the entertainment industry? Um, I guess my first role was an intern. Um, I was actually intern at EMI. Um, it's not there anymore, but EMI back in 2008 as an IT intern. So I wasn't even doing um, music marketing or anything it was just happened to be I was majoring in IT okay. um, and I was a college kid um, didn't really know what I was going to do in my life and just kind of trying to figure out what to do and then everybody was doing their internships and then one of my friends were um, interning at EMI at the time I think she was doing the journalist major or something and yeah she's the one who kind of introduced me to this uh, this company and I was like all right I like music uh, I like the um, entertainment business so that's awesome so they were hiring uh, they were hiring an IT intern so I joined and that's kind of how I got my foot into the door but um, as I was um, experiencing the more of the um, environment I thought that music marketing is kind of like my next step into the uh, professional career. Yeah, how'd you figure that out um, as an intern? Like, were you able to look at the different roles around you and go, yeah, that sounds interesting? Or was there something that opened up and you're like, I guess I'll try that? 
I mean, when you're an IT intern, you get to experience like a lot of different departments because you are your role is to kind of go into uh, different people's offices, fix up their computers, and back then Blackberry. So um, yeah, a lot of tech support got into it. And then I think I was, um, of course it wasn't just me, but I was uh, with my uh, colleague and then um, went into this A&R person's office and we're um, fixing up the computers. And then we had a, we saw the demo CD for the um, David Guetta at that time. He had a One Love album. Yes. And then it was way before the, it was uh, supposed to be released. I think it was like three months before the release. And then um, the, the demo CD was there. So we just kind of played it. And then we got to hear the music in advance. It was like, wow, this is awesome. Like you get to hear the music in advance and you get to kind of picture like what was going to be happening when it comes out what kind of marketing is going to be involved, what kind of promotions, all that. So you were, I was able to kind of like imagine all that kind of uh, things happening. And then that kind of gave me a kick of like, whoa, like, yeah. okay, like kind of want to like do that and then uh, map out the plans and what, what, what like how we can um, do things to support this album and promote this album and, and just have the people to enjoy it worldwide. And then I think to be part of that will be freaking awesome. So I think that kind of like have a feeling kind of motivated me to get into the more of the marketing and promotion side. <laughs> yeah, but in the end, I was just applying for more focus on the uh, music label side. And yeah, like I, um, at the time, uh, Warner Music Korea um, hired me as an intern. Um, and then I was doing the uh, music marketing, international marketing. So promoting more artists like Ed Sheeran and Bruno Mars. David Guetta into the Korean market. So I was doing the more pop international marketing role. And then, yeah, I was doing that for uh, three months of an internship and then hired right after. And what was your first position after that internship? What was that called? Um, marketing assistant. Marketing assistant? Uh, yeah, I was just yeah. curious. I don't know what the next the next one is. So you're marketing assistant now. So now you're really able to like absorb everything. You're You're able to take on, be creative. What kind of responsibilities came with being an assistant? So simplest way to put it is that how do I promote these international artists into Korea market? Okay. So in Korea, um, first of all, English is not a first language. Um, Korean is the first language. And then international marketing, uh, international music consumption compared to the more Korean local music consumption is around, uh, at that time was maybe like 20% or less than that. So um, there was a very niche market into it. So my role was to really target those niche markets and then make sure that these artists do successful in those niche audience while also create crossover opportunities. So more of the mass audience can be able to hear and know about um, these artists and these music um, in the uh, in Korean market. Well, so that I find that so interesting because, and I was going to ask you later, like now knowing what you do now, based on my research, it's very much tied into what you were doing at that first job, right? I mean, probably in a smaller way, obviously, but it was very, it makes, it's, it's still a lot of what you do now, right? I mean, yeah, due to the background that I, yeah, due to the background that I have all, like always, I will have appreciation and then have that access to the um, international music. Um, that's what I started off from. And then being in this uh, glo uh, global major company, um, of course, like our artists are these global superstars and international artists that we have from 
uh, not just in uh, US or UK, uh, but Latin or Europe or all over the different places. So um, yeah, like I will always have the Thai um, access and um, tie into it and be able to um, work on these artists and create opportunities for artists where it makes sense into the, some of the Asia and Korea um, countries and their events and whatnot. Amazing. And so were there any moments back then or like any particular collaboration or any particular artist that you brought over that you had an idea on how to market in Korea that you were really proud of? Anything in spe- anything specific? Um, yes, um, a lot, a lot of different memories <laughs> while yeah. I was, uh, when I first started off. I think as soon as I joined the company, that's when Bruno Mars' second album, Unorthodox Jukebox, they yes. came out. <laughs> so, which was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> And then um, I think it was uh, around November, December kind of timeline. So in Korea, it was just freezing. Like it was snowing everywhere and stuff. But um, I don't know why, but uh, my boss at the time wanted to do a, a street marketing, uh, whereas in, um, we go with the different dancers with the, uh, with the um, cut of cardboards of the, the album and then just doing this um, street um, dancing around and then um, just promote the yeah just to promote the album on the streets and I remember it was just uh, um, freezing it was snowing and it was freezing so um, the dancers uh, were just amazing um, getting really involved and then um, they, they did their best to you know do like guerrilla kind of performances and promotion um, but I remember that it was very very cold but yeah it was one of the fun uh, memories like as soon it happened like literally as soon as I joined the company so I was like wow I'm like all right yeah no that sounds really fun do you feel like that would be I mean it's years ago but do you feel like that would be a successful strategy now or not really not during I mean, I not, guess, maybe not in the cold but in general it, exactly um that was about um eight nine years ago so and of course like this is all before COVID and um, there's more people on the streets. So at the time, yeah, like uh, it was more, uh, it was one of the marketing strategy that came into it. Um, but obviously, I think things are a little bit different now, uh, especially the COVID uh, phases were happening. There's it, it focus a lot more digital. And then how can we focus on people to be accessing without um Having going to. outside exactly well exactly. specifically so, also i wonder you know because concerts and tours and merchandise on those tours are such a huge part of the revenue stream right for artists um so how's it been without that the last couple of years or this to the same extent i mean um tough tough definitely for sure um now um we relied a lot on artists to be releasing new music and then uh, we encouraged um, artists to be releasing as much music as possible because that is, we we're able to create the moments, right? It wasn't like uh, before where there's a tours and promo tours uh, where they can go and then um, ha- travel to different countries and um, have the face, face to face encounter with the fans and new audiences. But now they uh, or not now, but while we weren't able to do that, um, we just have to create those moments for the artists. So we just continue to encourage them as much as possible. And then in the end, um, as a label, recorded music is very important part of the uh, revenue. And then 
uh, faster for the artists. So I think that's what what becomes so we, especially the um, artists at the local level, we encourage the artists as much as possible and the A and R team. Oh, good to know. Yeah, makes and that makes sense. And yeah. so over the course of nine years, you really stayed in the same focus, right? With the same focus for the most part. Did you feel like your roles and responsibilities obviously grew? But what was added to your plate? What kind of things were you not expected to do when you started that now at the same, you know, at, at a higher level or at a higher position, you're now responsible for? Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, I think during those two years, I just learned a lot about, you know, just marketing and promotion. And then at, the, at that time, I think it was very as simple as how can we come up with a creative strategy and then creative um content to be promoting into the Korean market. Uh, but as uh, after I got promoted a little bit after that, then I was able to see the numbers and then more detailed into uh, the budgeting and the strategy into it. So I think that was kind of like step up into, all right, it's not just about marketing, fun, creative assets and stuff. Like yeah. how can we actually map it out for over the course of time and the fiscal year and the budgeting that goes into it. So I think I was able to learn more about that uh, after I got that promotion into it. I love that. I, I read somewhere that you specifically said, which really stuck out to me, that you feel like K-pop specifically is almost the way Marvel looks at superheroes, right? That you guys look at, I don't want to butcher this, so tell me if I'm completely wrong, but the idea being that it, there's a greater story, there's greater storylines and that is part of the marketing for for K-pop. Is that is that you know, is that correct? Well, I guess um, first of all, I think K-pop is Indian Korean pop, right? Korean music. So um, it's it's yeah, it's the shortened for Korean music into the K-pop. But I think a lot of people, especially the Western side of the world, knows K-pop just as like the BTS and Blackpink, more like the male, female, um, the groups right. uh, that do like performances and stuff. Um, so there's one side of the K-pop, but I think within the K-pop genre, there's also- It's a big umbrella, uh, right? Exactly. There's hip hop, R&B, um, singer songwriters, um, just indie, um, dance music. There's many different kind yeah. of uh, subgenres within the K-pop. Um, but- I think that elements of when it comes to boy groups and girl groups, um, I think it's very important um, because there are so many groups that is coming out like every year, the new groups um, along with the groups in their first year, second year or established group. Um, I think their challenges is their challenges are how can we stand out compared to the other groups? So within that, uh, they're trying to, um, there are different kind of elements that they want to focus on to stick out. Like, is it going to be the vocal part of it? Is, is it going to be the visual part of it? Or is it going to be the concepts and themes? So I think that's when I meant uh, when it comes to the Marvel characters, because certain companies, it's not about all the labels, but certain labels and managements really want to focus on that concepts and themes so that um, they can create some kind of storyline. It's almost like a novel or a movie. So the fans can really get into it and then figure out more about like watching, you know, Twilight and Marvel. There's, it's not just about um, Iron Man shooting fires and stuff like that, right? There's actually more stories and history behind it. So some of the groups and some of the labels 
um, kind of put that concepts and themes into these K-pop groups so that fans can really get into it and then really play around it and then uh, put their own thoughts into it while it's trying to understand what the concepts that the labels and these artists are trying to portray. Yeah, no, I, I find it incredible, really, because you think about, you talk a little bit about this um, idea of storytelling. So how would you um, describe the importance of, of storytelling and creating a brand for yourself as an artist? Um, I guess um, it, it is all different, uh, depends on like which kind of artist um, you are under, under this K-pop genre. I think when it comes to the um, singer-songwriters, um, not too different from the Western artists or any artists in the world that uh, they want to tell their stories uh, is more personal or based on the um, stuff that, that they went through. So um, portray that into uh, their their songs and their tracks and their performances. I think that's really important for um, singer-songwriter kind of the artist. But when it comes to those um, groups, the boy bands and the girl bands, uh, like I said before, um, sometimes the labels do trying to put the storylines first uh, while developing these groups before they debut. So sometimes they do hire um, writers that do, used to do like a TV dramas or movies and stuff, even hire them to be getting to this project because they're the ones who are probably better at telling the stories, yeah. right? So um, have them to be involved and then create the, uh, the concept and different kind of themes and the universe really to um, um, for these groups so that, yeah, like I said before, like fans can interact with it. You know, they can watch it like a movie. They can really get into each character in different kind of ways. I mean, of course, like it's fans as well know that this is not like he's an artist. He's not like an actual, like a character or something, right. but actually like, but it's a, but at and, the same time, yeah. they can kind of play around with that, right? And you're saying for the most part, I mean, what you were saying before also is that there is often a level of an authenticity to it, too. It's like trying as much as you can for the artist or for the group to bring out their own individual stories and, and put that into their writing, put that into their performance. And um, that makes a lot of sense. And do you do you feel like that's probably like a huge contribution as to why the fandoms I think for a lot of the K-pop boy girl uh, boy bands and girl bands are so much bigger than anything I think we see in the West. I could be wrong, and and I want to hear your perspective on it. But I mean, there's some things you can compare it to. But I I remember going to the MTV VMAs like prior to the pandemic, like two years ago or so, and the way people received bts was a, another level and i remember my aunt who's much older was with me and not much older that sounds awful but she's older than me and she she was just like i've never seen anything like this and i've seen huge huge bands in, in my life and we were talking about there's just a different fandom to bts and there's a different fandom maybe to blackpink and and many other k-pop bands do you think that that's part of it that that's the storyline part of it that comes with their marketing how would you describe that because we don't really have that i think in the west as much right there's it's not right. the same level of devotion the same level of love anytime the camera even panned to bts they didn't care who was talking who was accepting an award the camera looked at bts and the whole 
theater exploded. And it, it's, right. it's cool that that's possible. But what do you think? Why is that so different than how we receive artists here? I think there's two different elements. Um, I don't have to go too much details into the storyline element because, of course, um, you know, that's one of the ways that you'll be able to hook the fans into the um, your group and then you'll be able to uh, get them more involved and interact and have their own interpretations or, you know, give them the um, interpretation, interpretations that is intended um, to get into that really, like, um, suck into the storyline and they get really involved into it. But I think the second element is more of the fan engagement. Um, I think within the K-pop industry and then K-pop community, super serving to the fans is very important. And then the artists are really, um, artists and the labels know the importance of the fans. Um, once you get them onto your side, um, they'll be devoted. Um, they'll be really, um, really, really supported. And I think it's the, it might have come from the Korean culture. Um, I think that kind of a, a really believing, um, believing and supporting the, any kind of a guys that you're guys or girls or celebrities or uh, movies and directors that you, you're supporting and people really get into it and then they give their full supports. I think that was part of the Korean culture that's been going on for a while that kind of translate into the k-pop element and then mm. that became the k-pop culture in general Got so it. i think um everybody um in korean entertainment um, industry uh, and especially in the music in industry really see the importance of the getting engaged with the fans so you can tell that like a lot of times uh, uh k-pop artists um do shout outs to the fans like really a, like a lot of shout outs to the fans and then they are on different kind of platforms to try to communicate with the yeah. fans as much as possible. Um, so that, um, and even like some of the offline events, there's offline event, events specifically for having one-on-one -on -one communication time with the fans. Of course, it's like selected fans who uh, purchase the albums and stuff like that. But at the same time, like it is really like face-to-face -face interactions, which is really um, personal. That kind of elements lead to the fans really supporting the artists more and more and more as we go along and to where we are now. It's so interesting, really. And I feel like anyone who listens who's an artist or who wants to be an executive one day, this is all incredibly important to kind of factor into how they build their brand, how they build other people's brands. So a question specifically, I know one of your responsibilities is um, collaborations with artists from here from the states or from the uk or from latin america what how do you go about deciding what would fit the best what would work really well together how does that decision get made um i think it involves many different parties um but first of all i'm not going to be trying to be saying that i'm an a and r or i'm right. a music producer because yes. i'm not and then i i respect like that's the job that I respect the most. And that is something that is not my specialties, but I know that the A&R guys and uh, the artist managers and producers, I respect them so much for that. So the way I approach it is uh, marketing angle. Um, <clears throat> easily just to say that like you have um, artist A and artist B, they have a similar kind of uh, genre and concepts to it. Um, why don't we just have each other to be... Um, to the collaboration and then tap into a different kind of fan audiences of each other's. And then of course, um, 
it's not just the audiences, but the uh, countries and cultures that they're um, in. We get to mingle them together yeah. and then have each other to be supporting each other. And then basically, I think the collaboration is one probably the best way to uh, the crux of the crossover marketing. Yeah. From our, my personal experiences, yeah. um, there's a song called Way Back Home um, by this artist named Sean. It went number one in Korea as soon as it came out and then transferred to Vietnam, number one there, China, number one. So it was just a massive hit in Asia. Um, and then I was able to had an opportunity to uh, meet with different uh, marketing folks in different parts of the world. Uh, in, in the world within the Warner, uh, we had a marketing conference and then I had an opportunity to present the song to the uh, different marketeers and um, A&R folks. And they listened to the song and they understood. They're like, oh, okay, we get it. We get right. why this is a hit. This is a very catchy, uh, very commercial song. Uh, of course, it makes sense that it went number one. And then, yeah, we were just chatting and having different kind of ideas into it. And uh, we had a and our person at Spinning was interested in why don't we do in the remix of that? I was like, all right, that's cool. So we had a Sam Felt um, join the track and then do the remix part of it. And then we had a, a marketing person at A&R um, at UK. And he was like, all right, we have an artist named Connor Maynard and then he could do a verse in English. So yeah, all these three parts kind of came together and then we ended up doing the um, remix or remake version of Way Back Home uh, with Korean verses by Sean, the original singer, right. and then English verse by Connor Maynard and then a new remix tune by Sam Felt. And it was released through Spinning and Asia and it just became, it blew up. It blew up, blew up. Um, globally. And then that song actually... Uh, went from K-pop into pop now because now it has an English verses by um, Western artists jumping into it. So it gave another life in, in Asia as well. It yeah. grew up in Indonesia, Singapore, Taiwan, and just globally, like, it just became just massive. Yeah. So Sounds really exciting. The, yes, that was one of the very successful kind of a, uh, collaborations. Uh, very organic, I think. Yeah, I I mean that must be really thrilling to to hear that song and be able to take it different places. And when you go into a new year, how do you then look at that new year in terms of planning and strategy for a potential artist or a potential new artist? How do you how do you plan so that they have longevity? How do you plan so that the full year has stuff for them? What's your role in that? So um, as we were doing the marketing and then we planned out different uh, plans with the A&Rs and then um, there's different kind of uh, um, tools that we can use, right? There's sometimes PR elements into it. There's A&R elements, collaborations, media. Um, there's just many different, and tours, yeah. of course, and right. shows and promotions and everything. So when we try to put everything together and yeah. then look at their year and be like, all right, we have all different resources that we can use. How can we really use them? And then how can we map out our single plans, tour plans, so that we can maximize different kind of opportunities together. So, so and then it depends on the artists as well. Like some artists are more aggressive in the releases um, or faster in the writing processes. Some right. artists may need more time to um, prepare 
um, their songs together. They need more songs from different parties. Some artists work alone. So it depends on the different kind of artists and the different kind of genres that they are in as well. Uh, any tips for people who want to get to your role one day? Who are looking at you going, oh, wow. yeah, that sounds so great. I want to do what he's doing. Right. Wow. Another tough question. Um, yeah, I think as soon as, as long as you're um, passionate and then really have a hard work ethic, I think that's something that is underestimated these days. You're going to be facing another challenges of it's not just about working hard anymore. It's more about uh, doing well and then doing efficiently. So I think that's going to be the next phases, which I'm learning at that stage. We um, all are. I, exactly. How can I um, reduce, how can I get my batting, batting average better? Right. You know? Of course, there's going to be constant failures that's going to be happening. Right. Um, but you just have to learn from those failures and mistakes and get better. And then I, I guess the last thing that I do want to say and then I do believe in is that uh, you can't be afraid of the failures and you got to be more accepting to the failures. I'm constantly um, thinking that how many more failures can I make? Because so I know smart. that the, I know that these experiences, you know, it, we will, I will learn from them and then um, I shouldn't be afraid of it. And then those, I truly, truly believe in, not just from me, but the mentors and different people that I work with are saying that, um, some people even say that um, you can't trust a person who never had a failure. <sighs> so That's that, really good. I feel like we, I think we're all so scared of failures, right? Yeah. I once saw a video, I might have mentioned this in another episode, but I once saw a video where like a year or two ago where this girl said that she used to come home and at dinner, her dad used to ask her and her family, what are like some failures from the day? And he'd be disappointed if they didn't have any. And there were a lot of comments. This was probably on TikTok, if I can remember. But there were all these <laughs> comments like, what do you mean? That's so negative. And she was explaining. She's like, no, I was never afraid of failures. That was so part of my life that I didn't I, – I went to find them, kind of what you're saying. I went – I searched for them. I found where they were, and then I learned from them. And that didn't excite me as – you know, you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes most of the time. So I think the more we can embrace them, like you're saying, the better – um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but just this idea of how do artists use this, use TikTok or, or, or find ways. I mean, right now with music and TikTok are so ingrained. You know, if you find a really great challenge or a really great trend on TikTok, it just skyrockets music sales. It even recycles music from years and years ago and brings it back. So any any thoughts on that that artists can learn from? I think... Um... Artists can really maximize the, this TikTok space um, because, and they have, they should have a different kind of perception to it, along with um, the labels or marketing people or AR people to have a better education to the artists. Because I think it's a little bit different from maybe in US uh, compared to uh, some of the Asian countries like Korea. And actually, I think the uh, TikTok behavior is just very different for various different countries. To be honest, I was quite surprised uh, when I went to LA uh, this time around. A lot of uh, label people were asking how many followers a certain artist have on, instead of asking how much number on Spotify or Facebook or Instagram. 
It was like how much, how like how many followers that they have on TikTok, and that's just a normal um, everyday kind of uh, conversations. Whereas in Korea, I think it's still a little bit different. TikTok is more perceived as of uh, TikTok creators doing the creating the challenges and um, different kind of uh, dance moves and choreography, more visual focused. Whereas yeah. it it's not just about that. I think TikTok. Behavior and the how TikTok user behavior and how people utilize the music is very different from how it started. It's not about the, just the challenges anymore, but it's being used as somebody uh, just filming random stuff and then use it as background music. Like it's become a soundtrack of their lifestyle, and that's how TikTok is becoming too. Not just the visual challenge elements to it, and the, even the artists like they. Uh, some of the artists that we talk to, uh, honestly, they're a little bit resistant onto being really engaged on TikTok because they're not comfortable um, doing something on the short form platform. They want it to be, they want it to be presented perfectly to their fan bases. They don't want to be showing their too much of a personal um, kind of like raw kind of moments to the fans because they respect the fans. I think that's the most important thing, but. Um, slowly we're telling that that like it's not just about like there's so many ways that you can use them you can actually be properly presentable on the TikTok as well and then you can actually show um, and share with the fans um, your music your singing abilities and um, you being on the studio very artist-like moments on the TikTok not just a fun and light kind of moments so you can be really serious about that as well and then that's gonna help market marketing people to be talking to the tiktok be like um yeah maybe this is not a traditional way uh for this artist approaching to the uh, tiktok space but he is engaged he or she is in very engaging in their ways to be uh, communicating with the fans on our uh, tiktok users so well said it sounds like there's a lot of creativity in what you do we're trying, we're trying because so. we we work with different kind of artists. It's not just the one genre right. of artists. It's just a different artist with different mindsets and how their approach is very uh, different. So I think um, instead of just uh, one one boot fits it all, like we have to super serve and then try to find different ways for each of artists to be engaging in. Yeah. Uh, not just on the TikTok, on just uh, many different angles. It just, it, yeah, it feels like in your perspective, you have to have a bigger picture idea of the artist and or the group. And I feel like this is just one way and you can be flexible with that. Very interesting. I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Thank you so much for this interview, for answering all my questions. It's really fascinating and uh, I really appreciate it. No, not a problem at all. And yeah, thank you for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you haven't yet, do me a favor, drop a five-star review, follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, and find me on Instagram. I'm at at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. Share this in your stories. Let me know what you think. Share it with a friend, and I'll see you next time.